Hey, nerds. Last week, the court issued two new opinions. I read the first of these opinions last episode, and I'll be reading the second today. Enjoy. Justice Gorsuch delivered the opinion of a unanimous court in Department of Agriculture, Rural Development, Rural Housing Service, the Reginald Kurtz. Decided February 8, 2024. A credit report can determine everything from whether a person can secure a credit card, purchase a home, win a new job, or start a small business. Recognizing the importance of accuracy in credit reporting, Congress adopted the Fair Credit Reporting Act in 1970, FCRA. In its present form, the Act allows consumers to sue private lenders who willfully or negligently supply false information about them to agencies that generate credit reports. The question we face is whether one of the nation's largest lenders, the federal government, is also susceptible to suit when it supplies false information, or whether it may invoke sovereign immunity to avoid liability. Part 1 This case arises from a loan Reginald Kurtz secured from the Rural Housing Service. The service, a division of the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, issues loans to promote the development of safe and affordable housing in rural communities. According to Mr. Kurtz, he repaid his loan in full by mid-2018. Despite this, the USDA repeatedly told TransUnion, a company engaged in the business of preparing consumer credit reports, that his account was past due. These misrepresentations damaged his credit score and threatened his ability to secure future loans at affordable rates. In an effort to resolve the problem, Mr. Kurtz alerted TransUnion to the error, and the company in turn notified the USDA. But Mr. Kurtz says the USDA failed to take any action to investigate or correct its records so he eventually decided to sue the agency under the FCRA. As originally enacted in 1970, the FCRA focused largely on two groups. First, it addressed consumer reporting agencies like TransUnion, charging them with various new duties designed to ensure the accuracy and confidentiality of their work. Second, it imposed new regulations on persons who procure credit information from consumer reporting agencies. So, for example, the Act provided that a person who requests an investigative consumer report on any consumer must inform the consumer in writing not later than three days after the date on which the report was first requested. The FCRA proceeded to define the term person broadly to mean any individual, partnership, corporation, trust, estate, cooperative, association, 
government or governmental subdivision or agency, or other entity. The Act further authorized consumers to seek damages for violations of its terms, but only against consumer reporting agencies and those who use the information they produce. In the Consumer Credit Reporting Reform Act of 1996, Congress amended the FCRA to broaden its reach. As relevant here, Congress added provisions addressing those who furnish information to consumer reporting agencies. Referencing the definition of person it had adopted in 1970, Congress instructed that if a consumer disputes the completeness or accuracy of his credit information, the person who furnished it must investigate the matter and take steps to correct any mistake. To enforce these new duties, Congress revised the 1970 Act's remedial provisions. Where it had once authorized consumer suits against only consumer reporting agencies and users of their information, Congress now authorized consumer suits against any person who willfully or negligently fails to comply with any of the law's requirements. Mr. Kurtz sought relief under these new provisions. According to his complaint, the USDA furnished information to TransUnion. The agency had noticed that the information it supplied was false. That false information impaired Mr. Kurtz's ability to access affordable credit. Yet the agency failed to take any steps to correct its mistake either willfully, in violation of Section 1681-IN, or negligently, in violation of Section 1681-O. By way of remedy, Mr. Kurtz sought money damages consistent with what the FCRA allows. In response, the USDA moved to dismiss the complaint. The agency did not dispute that allegations like Mr. Kurtz's state a viable claim for relief. Instead, it pointed to this court's precedents, holding that as sovereign, the federal government enjoys immunity from suits for money damages unless Congress waives that immunity. And the agency contended nothing in the FCRA purports to render the federal government amenable to suit. The district court sided with the USDA, but the Third Circuit reversed. Speaking for a unanimous panel, Judge Krauss observed that Sections 1681-IN and 1681-O authorize suits for damages against any person who violates the Act, and Section 1681-A expressly defines person to include any government agency. The question whether Mr. Kurtz may sue the federal government holds significance for many. A 2021 study cited by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau found that over 34% of consumers surveyed were able to identify at least one error in their credit reports. 
Mistakes like these can lead lenders to insist on higher interest rates or other terms that might make it difficult or impossible for consumers to obtain a mortgage, auto loan, student loan, or other credit. These days, too, federal agencies are among the largest furnishers of credit information to consumer reporting agencies. Yet, the lower courts have reached different views on the question whether federal agencies are answerable under the FCRA for their mistakes. Like the Third Circuit, the Seventh and D.C. Circuits have held that the FCRA authorizes suits against government agencies no less than it does private lenders. The Fourth and Ninth Circuits, by contrast, have held that sovereign immunity bars consumer suits against federal agencies. We agreed to hear this case to resolve that conflict. Part 2 The parties agree on the principles that guide our analysis even as they disagree on the answer those principles yield. Under this court's precedence, both sides acknowledge the United States, as sovereign, is generally immune from suits seeking money damages. At the same time, Congress may choose to waive that immunity. But because the power to waive the federal government's immunity is Congress's prerogative, not ours, this court applies a clear statement rule. Under the rule's terms, we will permit a suit against the government only when a statute unmistakably allows it. Congress need not state its intent in any particular way. It need not use magic words, nor must it make its clear statement in a single section or in statutory provisions enacted at the same time. But one way or another, a waiver of sovereign immunity must be unmistakably clear in the language of the statute. Necessarily, this inquiry trains on statutory text rather than legislative history, because any ambiguities in the statutory language are to be construed in favor of immunity, no amount of legislative history can supply a waiver that is not clearly evident from the language of that statute. Conversely, when an unmistakably clear waiver of sovereign immunity appears in a statute, no amount of legislative history can dislodge it. Either way, then, a court charged with asking whether Congress has spoken clearly has its answer long before it might have reason to consult the congressional record. To date, this court has found a clear waiver of sovereign immunity in only two situations. The first is when a statute says in so many words that it is stripping immunity from a sovereign entity. Congress has employed this approach in the Bankruptcy Code, for example, where it has stated that, notwithstanding an assertion of sovereign immunity, sovereign immunity is abrogated as to a governmental unit with respect to enumerated provisions of the Code. The second situation is when a statute creates a cause of action and explicitly authorizes suit against a government on that claim. 
Statutes like these may not discuss sovereign immunity in so many words, but dismissing a claim against the government in these circumstances would effectively negate a claim Congress has clearly authorized. The court encountered a statute falling into this second category in Kimmel. That case involved the question whether the Age Discrimination in Employment Act of 1967, ADEA, abrogated state sovereign immunity. As originally enacted, the ADEA authorized employees to bring claims against employers who discriminate based on age. A later amendment incorporated into the ADEA a provision of the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, FLSA, that extended the right to bring claims for age-based discrimination against any employer, including a public agency. And elsewhere, the FLSA defined public agency to include the government of a state or political subdivision thereof and any agency of a state, or a political subdivision of a state. In light of these amendments and their cross-references, Kimmel held, the statute's plain language clearly demonstrated Congress's intent to subject the states to suit for money damages at the hands of individual employees. Guided by these principles, we think the Third Circuit reached the right decision in this case the FCRA affects a clear waiver of sovereign immunity. In Section 1681S-2, the Act requires persons who furnish information to consumer reporting agencies to investigate consumer complaints and make any necessary corrections. In Sections 1681N and 1681O, The Act authorizes consumer suits for money damages against any person who willfully or negligently fails to comply with this directive. In Section 1681A, the Act defines the term person to include any governmental agency, and the same provision instructs us to apply this definition throughout the entire subchapter, where Sections 1681N and 1681O appear. Through this series of statutory directions, no less than those we encountered in Kimmel, Congress has explicitly permitted consumer claims for damages against the government. Dismissing suits like Mr. Kurtz's would effectively negate suits Congress has clearly authorized. We need look no further to resolve this case, but if we do, other portions of the FCRA point to the same conclusion. Section 1681AY includes from the definition of consumer report certain communications that are not provided to any person except any federal or state officer, agency, or department, or any officer, agency, or department of a unit of general local government. Section 1681B requires a person who intends to take adverse employment action based on a consumer credit report to provide the affected individual with a copy of the report unless an agency or department of the United States government seeks to use the report 
as part of a national security investigation. Both provisions thus exempt government agencies from the Act's otherwise broad definition of person for particular reasons in particular contexts. All of which tends to confirm what the Act tells us explicitly. Throughout the Act, the term person includes the government unless otherwise noted. To be sure, there are other provisions in the FCRA, just as there are elsewhere in the U.S. Code, that address the question of sovereign immunity in different and arguably even more obvious terms. For example, Congress added Section 1681U to the FCRA as part of the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 1996. That provision allows the Federal Bureau of Investigation to access consumer information subject to a number of constraints. At the same time, the statute indicates that the failure to respect those constraints can expose any agency or department of the United States to liability to the consumer for money damages. While nothing in Section 1681U discusses sovereign immunity as such, everyone agrees its language clearly waives sovereign immunity. None of that, however, makes the waiver of sovereign immunity reflected in the provisions now before us any less clear. If no magic words are required to waive sovereign immunity, then the clarity of each statute must be evaluated on its own terms. And the fact that Congress chose to use certain language to waive sovereign immunity in one amendment to the FCRA hardly means it was foreclosed from using different language to accomplish the same goal in a different set of amendments to the same law. The question we must answer is not whether sections 1681A, 1681N, and 1681O speak in the same terms as section 1681U. The only question we face is whether those provisions speak clearly to the government's liability. Because they do, that is the end of the matter. Part 3. Section A. While the government largely accepts our understanding of this court's sovereign immunity jurisprudence, it disputes some of the finer points. As an initial matter, the government asserts that, to impose liability on a sovereign, a plaintiff must identify both a source of substantive law that provides an avenue for relief and a waiver of sovereign immunity. The implication is that a cause of action explicitly against the government is insufficient unless accompanied by a separate provision addressing sovereign immunity. That implication is correct. At the risk of repeating ourselves, a cause of action authorizing suit against the government may waive sovereign immunity even without a separate waiver provision. Nor does FDIC v. Meyer, where this court refused to recognize an implied cause of action, say anything to the contrary. The government must know as much. Why else would it hold out Section 1681U, a section that contains an express cause of action against the government but no separate waiver provision, as a model for authorizing suits against the United States? 
Changing tack but pursuing the same end, the government points to the canon against superfluity. Proper respect for Congress cautions courts against lightly assuming that any of the statutory terms it has chosen to employ are superfluous or void of significance. From this familiar teaching, the government seeks to extrapolate a new rule. A provision can waive sovereign immunity only if that provision would have no other role to play in the statutory scheme. That rule should foreclose suit here, the government submits, because allowing federal agencies a sovereign immunity defense would not foreclose every suit under sections 1681-IN and 16810. After all, even if consumers injured by government agencies could not seek relief under these provisions, other consumers harmed by private creditors still could. We cannot agree with this suggestion any more than the last. The canon against rendering statutory terms a nullity has a long-line lineage. But this court has never endorsed the notion that a statute may affect a waiver of sovereign immunity only if that is the sole work it performs. Doing so would, again, effectively force Congress to address sovereign immunity in so many words in a discrete statutory provision. It would come perilously close, as well, to imposing a magic words requirement. For good reason, then, the government's supposed rule appears in none of the decisions it directs us to, not in Seminole Tribe of Florida, not in Kimmel, and not in Nevada Department of Human Resources v. Hibbs, 2003. The government has another theory to offer. We may not find a waiver of sovereign immunity, it suggests when a cause of action merely cross-references a general definition that includes sovereigns along with non-sovereigns. Running with this idea, the government concedes that Congress would have clearly waived sovereign immunity if it had plugged the full definition of persons from Section 1681A directly into Sections 1681N and 16810. But the government argues a waiver of sovereign immunity cannot be affected by reading these provisions in combination. This theory encounters its own difficulties. Under this court's precedence, Congress need not make its clear statement in a single section adopted at a single moment in time. Instead, what matters is whether Congress has authorized a waiver of sovereign immunity that is clearly discernible from the sum total of its work. Were the rule otherwise, large swaths of our modern sovereign immunity case law would be cast into doubt. After all, in Kimmel, this court relied on the ADEA's incorporation of the FLSA's enforcement provision and the latter's provision's incorporation, in turn, of a separate definitional provision. In Union Gas, the court relied on the definition of person in the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation and Liability Act of 1980, along with other cues from surrounding statutory provisions. And in Seminole Tribe, we confirmed the clear statement in one statutory subsection by looking to provisions in another subsection. Alternatively still, the government points to Atascadero State Hospital v. Scanlon, 
1985, and employees of Department of Public Health and Welfare of Missouri, the Department of Public Health and Welfare of Missouri. These cases, the government insists, impose still other and more demanding rules a court must follow before finding a waiver of sovereign immunity. To appreciate the problem with this line of thinking, some background helps. For a period in the mid-20th century, this court's approach to sovereign immunity looked considerably different than it does today or did before. Back then, in cases like Pardon v. Terminal R. Company of Alabama Docks Department, 1964, this court was content to do away with state sovereign immunity without clear authorization from Congress. Instead, the court would infer a congressional intention to abrogate immunity from statutory text that made no mention of the government, sometimes resting on clues found in legislative history. In time, the court began to break from this approach. But decades passed before the court definitively repudiated pardon. Atascadero was one of the decisions issued during the course of this journey, and it does nothing to help the government's cause. In pardon, the court had held that a private individual could sue a railroad owned and operated by Alabama under the Federal Employers' Liability Act. This was so despite the absence of any provision in the statute specifically referring to the states. Why? Because the act applied to every common carrier by railroad in interstate commerce, and Alabama's railroad met that description. When later faced with a similar statute, one that permitted suit against any recipient of federal assistance, the Atascadero Court rejected Pardon's reasoning, holding that this sort of general authorization for suit in federal court is not the kind of unequivocal statutory language sufficient to abrogate state sovereign immunity. When Congress chooses to subject the states to federal jurisdiction, the court continued, it must do so specifically. Understood in context, then, Atascadero stands only for the now familiar proposition that Congress must, at a minimum, mention the government when it wishes to scrap sovereign immunity and permit claims for damages. The decision does not, contrary to the government's submission, counsel against recognizing a waiver of sovereign immunity when Congress authorizes suit against any person and takes the further step of expressly defining that term to include any government agency. Employees was another case decided during the long retreat from pardon and on first encounter, it might seem more promising for the government. That case concerned the FLSA, which authorizes actions against employers for unpaid overtime, and the question whether that law clearly permitted suit against state agencies. As originally drafted, the Act defined the term employer to exclude state agencies, but a later amendment to the statute's definitional section brought some states within its reach. Recognizing that the literal language of the act, as amended, covered some state agencies, the court nevertheless concluded that Congress had not spoken clearly enough 
to abrogate state sovereign immunity. As the government sees it, the same logic applies with equal force here. By its own terms, however, employees is distinguishable. The Employees Court stressed that while Congress amended the definitional section of the FLSA to include states, it had not made any changes to the underlying liability provision. And, the court reasoned, it would be surprising to think Congress meant to deprive a state of immunity on the basis of a change to a definitional section alone, without any accompanying change to the pertinent liability provision. But what the FLSA lacked, the FCRA supplies. As we have seen, Congress did amend the FCRA's liability provisions in 1996. In doing so, Congress replaced the narrow class of defendants originally subject to suit for money damages, consumer reporting agencies and users of the information they supply. In its stead, Congress provided that a different and much larger class of defendants, quote, any person, unquote, may be sued for violating any requirement of the FCRA. And from the statute's start, Congress has defined the term person to include any government agency. There is another problem with the government's invocation of employees. Despite recognizing that the literal language of the FLSA permitted suits against states, the Employees Court considered it all but dispositive that it could not find a word in the Act's legislative history indicating that Congress wanted to make it possible for a citizen of that state or another state to sue the state in the federal courts. As should be clear by now, that is not how this court's contemporary sovereign immunity doctrine works. With time, this court has resolved that our task is to look for a clear statement in the text of the statute. And just as it is error to displace sovereign immunity based on inferences from legislative history without clear statutory direction, so it is error to grant sovereign immunity based on inferences from legislative history in the face of clear statutory direction waiving that immunity. The government itself has elsewhere recognized that such notions are relics from a bygone era of statutory construction. In saying this much, we do not wash our hands of employees. No one before us questions that the decision is entitled to stare decisis effect with respect to the portions of the FLSA it addressed. We recognize only that the court has since repeatedly disavowed the decision's methodological approach and cautioned against its use when considering claims of sovereign immunity in other contexts. Section B. In a final set of arguments, the government pursues a different theme. Now accepting the contemporary sovereign immunity principles we have outlined, the government contends the provisions of the FCRA before us are still insufficient to abrogate immunity. Here, the government acknowledges that sections 1681-IN and 1681-O expressly authorize suits against any person. 
It acknowledges that Section 1681A expressly defines person to include any federal agency. But the government asks us to hold that Sections 1681N and 1681O do not clearly waive sovereign immunity because they do not unambiguously incorporate Section 1681A's definition. That is no small ask. When Congress takes the trouble to define the terms it uses, a court must respect its definitions as virtually conclusive. This court will not deviate from an express statutory definition merely because it varies from the term's ordinary meaning. Nor will we disregard a statutory definition simply because the question before us happens to involve sovereign immunity. Rather, this court has said it will deviate from a statutory definition only when applying the definition would be incompatible with Congress's regulatory scheme or would destroy one of the statute's major purposes. The government does not even try to meet that standard in this case. How could it? The government acknowledges that federal agencies are among the largest furnishers of credit information in the country. So, applying the Act's definitional and civil liability provisions as written and allowing suits against federal agencies to proceed would, if anything, seem consistent with the Act's goal of ensuring fair and accurate credit reporting. Recognizing this problem, the government suggests a different kind of incongruity would arise if Sections 1681N and 1681O incorporated Section 1681A's definition of person. The government focuses on the fact that Section 1681A's definition of person includes not just federal agencies, but state entities as well. So, giving that definition effect in Sections 1681N and 1681O would render not just the federal government but also individual states susceptible to consumer suits for money damages. And that result, the government contends, is unthinkable. Unthinkable because Congress enacted the FCRA pursuant to the Constitution's Commerce Clause, a provision this court has held does not endow Congress with the power to abrogate state sovereign immunity. While the premise of the government's argument is correct, its conclusion is not. If the FCRA is a piece of Commerce Clause legislation, the waiver of sovereign immunity affected by Sections 1681N and 1681O might be constitutionally invalid as applied against individual states. But none of that means we may disregard the statute's clear terms. Instead, we ask two distinct questions in cases involving claims of state sovereign immunity. First, whether Congress unequivocally expressed its intent to abrogate that immunity, and second, if it did, whether Congress acted pursuant to a valid grant of constitutional authority. Often, this court has found, a federal statute does clearly seek to abrogate a state's immunity, but lacks constitutional authority to accomplish that objective. Analytically, today's case is no different. 
person means what the FCRA says it means, even if state defendants might be able to raise a valid constitutional defense to a consumer suit that the federal government cannot. Perhaps recognizing as much, the government pivots to a discussion of the Act's other enforcement mechanisms. Most notably, the government points to Section 1681Q, which makes it a crime, punishable by a fine, imprisonment, or both, for any person to knowingly and willfully obtain consumer information under false pretenses. As the government sees it, the term person in this provision cannot possibly bear its statutory definition because it is absurd to think Congress might have authorized criminal enforcement against federal agencies. What's more, the government submits, because the term person cannot include government in Section 1681Q, it cannot include government in Sections 1681N and 1681O either. Again, however, that much does not follow. Suppose, as the Third Circuit did when analyzing Mr. Kurtz's claim, that it would be absurd to subject the federal government to criminal prosecution. Suppose, too, that this absurdity supplies the exceptional reason necessary to deviate from Section 1681A's definition of person in Section 1681Q's criminal enforcement provision. Even spotting the government that much for argument's sake, absurdity is not contagious. The power to correct for an absurdity in one portion of a statute does not imply a license to distort other provisions of the statute. And the government offers no basis for us to think that applying Section 1681A's definition to the Act's consumer suit provisions in Sections 1681N and 1681O, as opposed to its criminal provisions in Section 1681Q, would lead to absurd results. Our obligation, therefore, remains to enforce the statutes presently before us, each according to its terms. Consider the alternative. If we could ignore Section 1681A's definition of person when it comes to Sections 1681N and 1681O, simply because applying that definition to other statutory provisions could lead to absurd results, where would Section 1681A's definition apply? Before the Seventh Circuit, the government proposed this solution treating federal agencies as persons subject to all the Act's substantive requirements but exempt from any of its liability provisions. That kind of wholly artificial, if surely convenient, distinction lacks any grounding in the statutory text and has no proper place in our jurisprudence. Venturing even further from the relevant statutory text, the government offers one last argument. It observes that the Privacy Act of 1974 covers some of the same ground we attribute to the FCRA. Passed to protect the privacy of individuals identified in federal information systems, the Privacy Act addresses the government's retention and disclosure of personal information, including the disclosure of that information to consumer reporting agencies. If a federal agency supplies inaccurate information, 
The Privacy Act allows individuals to seek a court order requiring it to correct its records. Money damages are also sometimes available. Because these remedies have long been available to address agency misconduct under the Privacy Act, the government reasons, there was no reason for Congress to supplement them with additional remedies under the FCRA. That's an unusual argument. Even the government concedes that, the Privacy Act notwithstanding, it is subject to and liable under at least some provisions of the FCRA. Nor is the need to juggle multiple and sometimes overlapping legal obligations an unusual feature of contemporary American life for the government any more than it is for the governed. Recognizing this fact, and mindful our role is to apply the law, not rewrite it, we approach federal statutes touching on the same topic with a strong presumption they can coexist harmoniously. Only by carrying a heavy burden can a party convince us that one statute displaces a second. Where two laws are merely complementary, as is undisputedly the case here, our duty lies not in preferring one over another, but in giving effect to both. The executive branch may question the wisdom of holding federal agencies accountable for their violations of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Certainly, the many and resourceful arguments it advances today suggest as much. But Congress's judgment commands our respect, and the law it has adopted speaks clearly. A consumer may sue any federal agency for defying the law's terms. Because it faithfully followed this legislative direction, the judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit is affirmed. We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.